Hi there, Dr. Paul here with Men's Psychology, and I have with me a guest uh, to help us talk about trauma together in men's lives, and his name is Jeremy Fox. He is a licensed professional counselor and EMDR-trained, approved consultant who specializes in treating trauma. He's practiced EMDR, eye movement desensitization, since 2014 and has facilitated several presentations regarding its use in such things as flashbacks, other symptoms of PTSD. He initially developed an interest in EMDR while working um, in community mental health and is aware of its effectiveness in treating trauma. He is now a facilitator for EMDR basic training courses and helps teach other therapists how to reduce trauma. He's passionate about men's mental health and enjoys dispelling the myth that therapy cannot be effectively adapted to uh, depression, anxiety, and trauma in males. So thank you, Jeremy, for joining us. And um, yeah, and I, I think that's all true. And that, that's part of why this course exists, because there is a new emerging field called men's psychology. And kind of ironic, because in the world of um, physical medicine, males have always been the uh, the test subjects and women were neglected. However, in the area of behavioral health, it has been kind of the reverse uh, since the beginning. There's much more uh, studies of women and the styles of therapy they need as opposed to what men need. Now, many of you know that uh, some of our colleagues in London at UCL and in uh, the British Psychological Society, uh, researchers such as Louise Lydon, John Barry, Martin Seeger, and, and many others <clears throat> are starting to study males. And one of their uh, basic principles that they tout is that uh, in behavioral health, if you encounter a male patient, you ought to assume some form, even mild, of PTSD. And I think that's very interesting. And I think part of the reason they say that is that if males have an instinct, one of the three they've discovered so far, to suppress emotion from public display and to control one's own emotions, then naturally that would mean all of the various traumas, big and small, that males encounter through their lifetime are going to be suppressed and not processed and not you know, rendered as harmless elements of the past. So we ought to assume all males we see in clinical practice have some kind of trauma that's that's unprocessed. What do you think of that? You know, I think that's a great point. Um, that there's there's typically some crisis point at least, right? So, and that goes for a lot of therapy recipients. If something isn't working, you've reached a level where coping is ineffective. Whatever it was you were doing to try to avoid impact on your occupational, scholarly, or leisure life isn't working anymore. So if taking a few drinks at night was helping to quell anxiety, maybe that's escalated into addiction, right? Or something else. And someone in your life has said, yo, you have to go get help. You're really not well, which is another reason men will often get therapy. Someone in their life has said, you know, it's maybe a significant other, a parent, whomever. Um, has noticed that this individual has disengaged from hobbies, is avoiding um, 
life and and again occupational social and scholarly um obligations which is kind of a big diagnostic thing is how much is something interfering with school or work depending on your age um and i would i would say that it goes from a range of subclinical for for listeners meaning not reaching ptsd levels of trauma so just withdrawing isolating um, experiencing triggering memories, but still kind of able to function all the way to complex PTSD, which again, um, is just for, for listeners, for simplicity's sake, that just means multiple episodes where it's so much trauma impacted your identity. So for men, often you'll see a remediative sort of drive to therapy, right? So it's, I need to get fixed from something. It's not always, I want to reach my peak. I want to explore myself, which a lot of life coaching and business coaching goes that way. And there's plenty of men in that field. Coaching is actually sort of a masculine, I would say, dominated field as far as life coaching. Um, but you'll, for therapy, it's often the point that something's gone amiss. And so if you even want to just take that word, psycho phrase psychological trauma, and say, well, if we're including anything that knocks you off the course of being a provider or functioning in your your unique spheres as a male in your life at the present, then yeah, it would be probably by definition something traumatic that would um, just being knocked out of being a provider or a student or an athlete. If you're in high school, a lot of teen guys now are have been so impacted by kind of that cocktail of COVID and just digital influence of what men should do and the, the many mis messages men get um, that teens just trying to operate and function in their scholarly pursuits and athletic pursuits um, may have reached uh, crisis points. And um, I think we're, we're seeing record numbers of, of teen anxiety and depression that um, may have had an initiating point that you could look at almost as a trauma, right? Depending on, on what you know, occurred. I, I, I like what you're saying. I, you know, it, it makes me think of how trauma, you know, they say trauma with a capital T versus trauma with a little mm -hmm. T. Capital yes. T being, you know, the obvious things like being victim of a crime or of abuse uh, in mm -hmm. childhood onward or being a veteran at war and seeing death, the, this is trauma with a capital T, but I have so much more traumas, well, not more, but so much more universal traumas with a little T, uh, things like bullying at school or failure athletically or academically in some way, or, or just the, the, the smallest um, unprocessed negative life's experiences end up coloring the male's uh, life and behavior. One of the ways I've seen this play out and have been in interested in recently is in romantic relationships that males have. Sometimes males will first and only present to therapy by way of couples counseling, for example, where they're under pressure that there's going to be a breakup or divorce. And some of the new thinking about how does trauma impact that could be said in the form that you know, say uh, a male and a female get in repetitive fights. One way of viewing the reason for the fights is that both are triggered in their minor traumas, and mm -hmm. it's really the trauma fighting. It, it, it's the two people's traumas yelling at each other rather than the real authentic 
trauma processed out person so they can be an authentic person who wouldn't want to fight. I mean, they're in a romantic relationship that could go well. They love each other. So trauma gets in, in into that domain too, romantic relationships. Absolutely. I would say um, games people play is, a, is an oldie but a goodie as far as books go. Um, good old Eric Byrne who did transactional analysis. So ego states, meaning self-states, loadouts. So we all have multiple parts. Now, it doesn't mean we have multiple personalities because we remember acting out of these parts. They're continuous. Whereas with DID, which is what we used to call uh, multiple personality disorder, now it's dissociative identity disorder. People switch into different personas and don't remember it. And it's kind of it's very, it's very frightening, and it's what people typically consider multiple personalities. But we all have different self-states, minor personalities. So like a petulant teen state where we feel misunderstood and rebellious, if that's what gets triggered by feeling slighted in a relationship and your partner has like a very wounded child part, you've got a 15-year-old part fighting with a nine-year-old, right? And your trauma, you're, you're the right. reenactment that you're talking right. about. But no one ever knows, like they remember it. And it's like, well, what came over me? Well, unresolved insecurities from 15 and nine years old is what came over both of you. And you enacted that. And, you know, when that's when that sensitive spot, like a, a sort like a sensitive tooth that has to be treated is hit. Oh, that hurts. But then you kind of avoid it and just oh, I'm just not going to bite there. I'm just going to, you know, eat on this side of my mouth. And you kind of let that fester and don't address it. And that's how you end up, I think, with record levels of divorce and record levels of, to be quite frank, gender animosity that we have now among men and women. Yeah, I, I mean, you get into really big topics there, right? One of the ways that um, that I view trauma, you know, I'd like you to add to after uh, we tell a little story here. But one of the ways I view it is that uh, I see EMDR as probably the most powerful, potent uh, method, if you will, of treating it. But then right alongside it, the inner child work, I think, is a great complement to EMDR. Mm -hmm. And then as an overall framework or model, the, the way I see the, um, uh, the concept of, of trauma itself and how, how exactly does it work, I see it as all the uh, events we experience in life tend to add new beliefs that we take on, most of which are unconscious or subtle or subconscious. And then if you added up all of those beliefs that were formed through experiences with others, that would be your worldview. If you added up every belief you have about how the world works and who are you in it and what are you worth and what is your role in the world, then that's your worldview. And so to this, if you give me just a sec here, I need to grab something. Um, it, if you add all these things together, you end up with um, a worldview in which you operate, and I like the Jungian concept at the at mm -hmm. that point of uh, the persona. You know, yes. you, you, here we go. You operate from a persona then, based on that worldview, which can't be 
factually accurate. It's not like physics and you're looking at what is absolutely factual about the world. It's your worldview. And now you have a public persona or even a, a persona with your spouse or with your intimate others that isn't quite you, the the real authentic you. It's it's your public face talking to the other person. That's kind of how I wrap all this together. EMDR, most effective inner child work, an amazing compliment to it. And then what is the person's worldview based on all the beliefs they've taken on through the interactions they've had, many of which are traumatic. So if you yes. clean, if you as a clinician clean out all of that unprocessed, terrible events and garbage that gets into the person's worldview as trauma, now mm -hmm. the more authentic person can be what the persona approximate what the persona could be yes yeah i agree with you completely so uh, this is where dan siegel's i dr dan siegel who's a prolific trauma author i recommend anyone check him out idea of the window of tolerance comes in right so if you have um a, a history of massive traumatic events and a a stimulus you know comes up so someone speaking to you in a bit of a raised tone or with a negative concern, right? Something perceived negative. If you have been sensitized to someone being negative as, as like maybe your abusive father or someone in your life who was dangerous, you may come at that with a, your, your fight or flight sense, right? That might, your limbic system may activate, might be overactive. Your sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response, heart rate goes up. And you enter that fight stance and what could have been a conversation that remained pretty calm ends up a knockdown drag out. So especially for men, let's not forget sadness often kind of mocked. I mean, historically it has been now we're doing better with that as a mental health field in general. But what is what happens? Sadness gets transmuted into anger. So you see men with years of anger issues that come about from childhood trauma where it's an angry child consistently lashing out that's some parts work so when men feel safe revealing that in therapy or going back and looking at okay this angry part of this angry child part right and that just means angry child memories okay you you have them think of that and then do the bilateral eye movement of emdr or these hand buzzers that go back and forth and that bilateral eye movement we know uh quells it quiets that amygdala okay emotion center activity and sends the brain the signal and the body the signal oh i'm through this experience i'm moving forward literally andrew huberman talks about this in a clip that's out there it's very interesting and so emdr simulates and stimulates the moving forward response not fight not flight not freeze but forward motion and so that's why it's such an appealing therapy to men too and Women, it incorporates emotion and logic, the logic of knowing something's in the past, it's done in the emotional reprocessing of bringing it up and being done with it. So to kind of land the plane here of, of trauma treatment that I'm talking about, a lot of trauma treatment involves containment of the event and reprocessing, containment and processing. So, you know, helping someone to feel safe and then going into it and pulling back when you have to. But EMDR is, is if, to boil it down, a heightened focus on a memory. And it's often something that's held by an older part, a child part that causes that distress that results in fighting. 
And then, you know, so heightening focus on it, recounting the trauma with eye movement, and that quells, that reduces that amygdala activity. So you're recounting an event that would normally be distressing um, in the safety of a clinical office or in a Zoom session with a therapist, moving your eyes, doing something that puts some distance between that emotion and the memory. It kind of extricates that, stores that memory yes. in semantic form and pairs that emotion away so that next time something reminds you of when your dad was yelling you or whatever, you have a few seconds to respond. Okay, no, this is not my dad. This is my wife telling me that she wishes I wouldn't forget to take out the trash. Like, oh, okay. So. Wow. I mean, there's a lot to latch on to there. Um, One one main thing I thought really links this particular subject to the whole rest of this course is that one of the main tenets in this new emerging field of men's psychology is that many of the therapies of the past that were more just being free to share your emotions, to, uh, you know, get the emotions out public to the therapist weren't working for males. Like CBT basically doesn't work for males. I could generalize about it. But what does work for males are some of the newly emerging therapies that mm-hmm. are about action, that are action taking, that are um, skill building, using skills, mastering the skills, and then <clears throat> getting them out um, right. into building your building your life, which is one of the other the reverse way of the new researchers explaining why do males not go to traditional psychotherapy? Well, it's because it doesn't offer them skill building toward goals and actions. So new fields, not fields, new models and methods for treatment, such as BAT, behavioral activation therapy, setting goals and pursuing those goals is what heals the male. It's not just emoting for the sake of emoting or sharing for the sake of sharing, which does help females process well and get out of depression, get out of anxiety. For males, they need to have a goal or set of goals and move toward them, even if they don't achieve them immediately, just moving toward them, forward motion. So that reminds me then of your fourth F you're adding. Everyone's heard of fight or flight. Some people have heard of fight, flight, or freeze, mm-hmm. but this is new to me, what you're telling me. There's a fourth F, fight, flight, yeah. freeze, or forward motion. Yeah, And I think that uniquely uh, helps the male not just heal, but grow. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's a, for anyone wanting to learn more, there's the article, the, um, video called Your Behavior Won't Be the Same by Dr. Andrew Huberman. So he's a Stanford neuroscientist. And this stuff with EMDR has been out here for a few years, um, but we're really starting to distill down the factors for how it works. We think that it that the eye movement or the distracting task overloads your working memory, which is just how much you can have in mind at once, how much I can be thinking about, looking at all at once. So a trick to trauma reprocessing is to keep someone a little distracted by a task like eye movement or noticing hand buzzers while recounting, while reliving the trauma. And it stretches Mm. your attention and it keeps you in the present. It's like you're in the matrix of your own trauma, but you have a, a rope, right? You're relaying down into it and you take 
moments to come out, get a breath, go back in, and you clear those memory networks out, we, we call it. I so, like that. I, I, yeah. I, I talk to, uh, to our students here a lot about uh, what we call observing ego, which is the mm-hmm. same as mindfulness. Basically, it's mindfulness, and it, it must be present-minded. You, you can't be mindful or have observing ego unless you're in a present moment mindset. And Bingo. some theorists posit the notion that the concept of time itself, at least our perception of time, is created by us having a bifurcated data processing in the form of left-brained, right-brained thinking. Left-brained thinking is organized row on row in the way history is organized. And right brain thinking, creative, um, expansive, visionary thinking is future oriented. So in a sense, the fact we have a left brain, not a physical left and right brain, although that matters to some degree, but we have processing that is left brained and analytical and organized on the one hand, but simultaneously right brain thinking that is expansive, uh, branched, networked, like an internet. That, that is future-oriented, well, if you get into PTSD trauma in your time frame, you're living in the past, literally living in the past, possibly yeah. fearing the future. So you're living in the future when you're in your worries and fears, and you're never yeah. in the present, where the power is to analyze, look, process. And that tether cord you're talking about is a tether mm-hmm. to the present to not get yeah. lost in the past or lost yeah. like like an astronaut who gets separated from the the capsule and there's no tether cord and they and he drifts into space you need that tether right. cord to the present okay so let's um, <laughs> so so let's give a uh, let's give a story here a framework um, to, to have a little storytelling so that it really gets into the memory um, of our students here. It was about 30 years ago that I had a professor named um, John Bridges who told me a story. It's the first time I heard of a connection between Greek mythology and psychology. And we were in an ER, and he was teaching me in the ER about emergency psychiatry. And he goes, hey, Paul, did you know... Uh, there's a Greek story that pretty much explains, for males at least, what trauma is and how it works. And I love it. And it's the, the story of Philoctetes, who was a Greek physician. And um, he was the uh, kind of like the golf caddy to Hercules. He was the, as a boy, he was the assistant to Hercules, and he would carry Hercules' bow and arrows for him in battle and assisted him every way he could through his his youth. And then when Hercules died, Philoctetes was given the honor of lighting the funeral pyre and was, as a gift, given the bow and arrow of Hercules. And he became a a physician to the Greeks. So I'm going to do a screen share. We're going to go into our our particular lesson here. And the reason this uh, was useful, uh, what John told me about it was, for the males you encounter who are traumatized, many, for many of them, the way they present to you is to come to you saying, you know, why even bother with me? I'm a lost cause. What's the point? I'm damaged. 
by this mm-hmm. trauma. I'm flawed. And this might be uniquely male to say, but there's nothing you can do with me because the fact this happens means I'm now permanently scarred, flawed. It's like I lost a limb. I'm never going to function again because of this event, this failure, this mm. victimization, which is full of shame for me as a male. So why bother with me? I'm valueless. I am now valueless. And even if you fix my trauma and make me feel different, I'll never. It's about function. It's mm. about me having my muscles, my bones working well, like an athlete. Because you could fix my heart and my feelings, but I've lost my limbs. I've lost my body. I have no body. My body's damaged. Okay. So let me try sharing here. Let's see. Screen. I love that. Um, While you're doing that, I'll just say, I I really think that that's going to resonate with a lot of men. Um, I've had many female trauma survivors who feel a contamination, like they'll never be whole again, often after sexual trauma. And so I think there are some parallels and it's squeezed through a cultural lens. And also, obviously, there's different elements at play. But I think for men now, we don't hear about in therapy enough what we can do to help restore a sense of mission and a sense of purpose especially like you talk about lost limbs. Let's talk about veterans. Oh my gosh, what an underserved population that's um, majority, at least from my understanding, male. So I I think we have an obligation as therapists to start putting out there. And by the way, that the future can be treated. Like we're big on talking about the past in this profession. And I even heard a life coach say, well, coaching is for the future, therapy is for the past. Therapy is actually supposed to address past, present, and future. So we're supposed to be helping male clients to understand um, that their future can have a mission and isn't without purpose. You can regenerate new purpose even in the midst of of trauma. Yes, absolutely. And it can only be done from the present. Uh, For us to look at the past, reprocess it, get it put into its proper place as history, and then apply it to the future, and the future holds our goals. So we we aim at the future. We don't control the future, but we aim at it, and we adjust our course. And that's what feels great to males and heals them. Absolutely. So let's go through this uh, this story a little more detail, and then we'll get to some discussion of it. So the the topic of the lesson is Philoctetes and how men heal. It's long been understood that men don't want to talk about their feelings. Doing so brings them a feeling of shame, which means it's suppressing the instinct that is masculine in nature. You know, the the masculine instinct, one of the three, first three discovered by Barry and Seeger in London, is to control oneself, to control the emotions, not display them publicly, and perhaps not display them to a therapist, which... It, it, it makes EMDR great because a male in EMDR doesn't necessarily have to talk out the emotions. He can just process them internally. It's great. All um, right. What men want to do instead of this is be given a mission, a goal to achieve, to heal, and to recover their sense of masculine self. 
This is illustrated thanks to uh, my old friend, uh, John Bridges. This is illustrated in the story of Philoctetes of the Trojan War. Philoctetes was a mythologic character from Greek tragedy um, written about by Sophocles, the playwright. He was a warrior on his way to the Trojan War as the the ship's physician. And while sailing for Troy um, from Athens, uh, Philoctetes was bitten by a serpent and he had a wound. Now the wound is representative of one's trauma, right? And the, the wound festered and it grew and it's, it swelled and it was nasty smelling. The smell was so noxious that the other warriors on the ship couldn't stand it anymore and saw Philoctetes as a liability. And he saw himself as a liability. And so these warriors abandoned him on the island of Lemnos. They abandoned their ship's physician on the island of Lemnos. And he was ostracized by his countrymen. So he played, in the end, he, he will have to play a decisive part in winning the Trojan War. Because he was bequeathed, as I said earlier, the bow and arrows of the Greek hero Her Hercules or Heracles in return for lighting the funeral pyre of Hercules. So he had become a quite notable archer. But here he is abandoned, alone, as many traumatized males you know, feel that, that, that depth of loneliness and aloneness. You know, we even talked recently about the Surgeon General's proclamation that there is a crisis of loneliness in America. And uh, what about the males specifically, the traumatized males in their loneliness? That's like being abandoned on this island of Lemnos. So the other warriors go on to Troy and they're fighting and they're starting to lose. And uh, they're kind of at a loss as to what to do next strategically. So they go to the Oracle of Apollo to get some advice um, from, you know, this god of uh, the arts and sciences and strategy and the, 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 god, the Renaissance man representation in the form of Apollo, the strategist. And the Oracle tells them that the only way the Trojan War could be won was with the arrows of Hercules in Philoctetes' possession and Philoctetes' skill at their use. In other words, you're not going to win the Trojan War without the very man you abandon because of his festering wound alone on that island of Lemnos. It has been long understood men don't want to talk about their feelings, so to speak. Doing so brings them a feeling of shame. What they want to do instead is be given a mission, a goal to achieve, to heal and to recover their sense of masculine self. So they instinctually need at least temporary solitude in order to find their sense of agency and autonomy to be able to access the emotions and the creative mind. Now, I've referred to this in our models that borrow from the, the nomenclature of the Greek deities, I've called it the Hades instinct, because Hades was the god of the underworld, 
um, which is representative of the male unconscious, the creative mind. Um, some self-help authors have called it the workshop, going into your inner mental workshop to be alone and just to ponder and to philosophize, who am I and what do I want to be next? And what do I want to do to heal? So right. the Hades instinct. So the island of Lemnos kind of represents this. Well, in the end, what the Greek warriors were, were instructed by Apollo was that they need to go back to that island and pick up their, their colleague because only he has both the tools and the skills to use the tools, these, these arrows and bow of Hercules, in order to win the Trojan War. And they did so. They went back to, to find him healed. He had healed himself as a physician. And I think this is notable for males because one of the, um, one of the core tenets of this emerging field of men's psychology by the, the emerging researchers in this field is that males can use therapy, but it has to be it has to be not about emoting in the session. It has to be about this Hades instinct of letting them go inside and letting them self-direct to discover what skills do they need to reach what goals they establish as their dream goals, their life's mission, their life's purpose, what goals can be constellated that would serve reaching or at least striving for that life's mission, and then what skill building would need to occur to be able to accomplish those goals. Well, that's what should be imbued in any good new emerging therapy for males is this self-directed self-agency um, in the healing process. In other words, the therapist, ideally, the therapist doesn't get credit for the healing that occurs for the male. The male himself gets the credit. And, and right. I think this is wonderful about the story of Philoctetes, that he is a physician. So you are all physicians of your own psychology. And mm -hmm. essentially, physician, heal thyself. You end up getting to heal yourself with the knowledge you acquire and the strategy you build. So the therapist is more of a, a brother at arms, a warrior alongside you, who is coming back to your island, your personal island of Lemnos, not to rescue you, but to actually honor you for the unique knowledge of the wound. This goes back to the 1990s and Robert Bly kind of material, the poets of the 90s. Um, the, the knowledge of the wound that you have acquired is special, exotic, unique knowledge that others do not have because they have not been wounded in the way you have. And I don't mean that I'm not proclaiming be a victim and, you know, cheer yourself for being a victim. I'm saying because you dared to fight in battle, metaphorically speaking, in the workplace, in relationships, out in the world, moving to a new city, whatever you've done so far with your life, that led to some wounds, 
some battle scars, the value of those wounds isn't in being a victim. The value of those wounds is they're badges of honor, like the novel, The Red Badge of Courage. They're mm -hmm. badges of honor marking the attempts you made as a man to become bigger than you were in a way that serves the world, in a way that helps others. You dared to be a hero of a sort, and you got some battle wounds in the process. So that's the knowledge of the wound. And that's what the bow and arrow of Hercules represents, of Philoctetes. They couldn't win the war without his experienced knowledge as a battle-tested man who did take on his wounds. And they, and they pick him up and they go back to Troy, sail back to Troy, like a 10-year journey to get there. And, and they win. They win the war. In part because of the traumatized male. In other words, you traumatized males, which are basically all males, um, mm -hmm. not, not only are you not worthless, not only are you not a lost cause, but the rest of us can't win the war, so to speak. We can't progress and grow as a society um, of goodness and beneficence and, and merit without you. That's how valuable you are. You're more valuable to society than the untraumatized, in essence, is the lesson. So what do you think? Jeremy, you know, my, I think that you're getting to some core facets of the, the male experience and what works as we know with, with men in therapy. So one of the biggest things that is a turnoff to many men in the therapeutic process is pity. And one of the ways that that's overcome is by having group therapy. So AA, so Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, groups that function as a mentee-mentor relationship, and then flip into then you learning a skill, which the Apollo instinct you talk about, and then dispensing that, sharing that with others, is a huge thing that uh, flips the understanding of therapy for many men. Now, though, let me be clear, those are peer-run groups. That's an example. Um, several years ago, I went to a presentation about that man therapy um, uh, foundation and effort in Colorado. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The advertising uh, campaign rather than any sure. new kind of therapy. So, it's advertising. And, and I, but. One of the key founders of that was speaking about her own experience and learning what works for men. And so that, that gave me many uh, new insights and a new paradigm and, and seeing that pity is a rule out men like humor yes. in their therapy, like yes. camaraderie. So there's, there's they actually so much like other males. They, they like other males to be the deliverers of the therapy. Ideally. So, I mean, I or, think or a very understanding female, a female that really deeply understands this. Let me, let me just interject something. You really strike upon something uh, that the researchers in London that I mentioned earlier have also hit upon. When asked if they could only pick one 
current style of therapy for males. And it was the only thing that could be delivered to them. Mm-hmm. Which would they pick? They pick male group therapy, men's groups run yes. by every group member is the leader and they co-mentor. That's the ideal therapy for males. If they could only pick one, it's not cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy. It's not even BAT. It's not even EMDR. It's men's groups where they co-mentor. They mentor each other. So, so everybody gets to have that Zeus instinct, the hierarchical leader. They all get that experience. They get to experience the Apollo instinct, which is being a Renaissance man, a man of letters, a man of arts and sciences, a teacher and a student. They get to use the Hades instinct, which is they can go inside internal, even in a group, and not be pestered or bothered for answers. They could just be an observer. So they get four or five or six different masculine instincts empowered by a men's group. And they get they get to be the author of their healing. They get personal yeah. credit for their healing. Yeah. So what so, you just said aligns with their top pick for what's the best form of therapy for males. Right. I think so there's a few things to get to. I mean, there's an, an article that came out that I encourage people to check out from the New York Times called Is the Cure to Male Loneliness Out on the Pickleball Court? And so um all <laughs> yeah. Way, yes. big, yeah, exactly. So and it discusses men using play and group activities as a way to bond and the kind of passing conversations that develop, which aren't that minor, right? We get in the midst of doing an activity, men often share. So it's very much like that adage that happiness is found in doing something else, not in a goal in itself. For men, emoting actually can happen, but it may be in the form of connecting in a passing, literally interaction, passing a ball, doing something like playing chess, like the conversations that happen in the in-between spaces, between turns, between movements. And that's something you can look at as potentially like happening in hunter-gatherer societies back on the hunt or doing things together at work. And you look at men having scouts in different like bowling leagues and um, activities that they would do, mentorships, starting a job that requires a sort of um, apprenticeship, right, which has now been kind of subsumed or replaced by interning. I mean, you look at all these mechanisms for male mentorship, how's that for alliteration, that have kind of fallen by the wayside. And we wonder, well, what's going on with men? Well, it, the reason we don't immediately think of what has happened is because I think all along the way, the past several decades, things have just disappeared, slipped away one by one. And we're left in this atomized, very individualistic culture. So we look at that article you sent me, which is amazing, um, from Richard Reeves of why Lone Ranger masculinity is a dead end. I mean, the title says it all. That sort of man as an island image is completely contradictory to history for what effective masculinity, healthy, positive masculinity looks like, right? Being yes, a tribe, yes. being together and mentoring, that is throughout anthropological findings and human history what we see about effective masculinity. I actually wrote back to Richard. I wrote back to Richard that I I partially agree 
with him that there is a, a kind of masculinity that is nurturing, you know, et cetera, that, and that is, has an affinity for groups and has familiarity. But I disagree that the Lone Ranger is bad. I disagree that the Lone Wolf approach is universally bad. It's one mm-hmm. of the Greek, it, it's a member of the Greek pantheon. You know, it's the Hades instinct to go inside yourself and go do some work on yourself, but then come back. It's uh, yeah. it's Jesus in the desert fighting with the devil and then c- right. coming back, transformed, yeah. improved. So the Lone Ranger is not bad. In fact, there would oh. be there would be no adventure or discovery without a man willing to be lonely enough to be the first to sail across the Atlantic or the first into space or the first to touch foot on the moon. That's lonely. And that's the Lone Ranger moment. Mm -hmm. So Lone Ranger isn't bad. He's one of numerous members of the pantheon of these instincts that males have. But I think what Richard was trying to do is say, let's not make the Lone Ranger the only way males express themselves. I agree with that too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's not only ego state. So if you have the Lone Ranger part of your adventurous part in your kaleidoscope of different personality elements that we that we have, then great. But if that's how you respond to everything, if you have avoidant attachment, can't form relationships with uh, friends, much less romantic partner that's effective, there's a problem there. And I think we need a masculinity that takes into account relational mentorship teaching aspects just the same as adventure i I like where you're going with that um you know femininity and masculinity deserve to be more complex than they are and i think adventure as the western realm of masculinity is awesome and looking at earlier western masculinity of philosophers um, of male figures who sought truth in groups. I mean, whether or not you consider yourself nerdier or more athletic, there's an archetypal masculine figure or experience there that can happen in a group, learning or athletic, and preferably both. I, I, I think we do ourselves a disservice to distill. I, I think what is. I, I think what was helpful in the end, uh, you know, talking to Richard, writing back to Richard about this was to say, I, I think what he was doing, I understand why, but he was kind of wrapping masculinity together with the notion of character growth because mm-hmm. he's a father to, I think, two boys. And and he he talks a lot about helping their character grow as a father and as a man. Well, character in our model, we have the in, we have the triune brain model as kind of our framework at men's psychology. Mm-hmm. So so we envision masculinity as being pure unconscious instincts that get expressed that are named after the Greek deities, the male deities. They interact with the Greek female deities as a nomenclature mm-hmm. in feminine instincts in the in the process of uh, you know, romance, marriage, working together, being in a family, being in a community, male and female, masculine and feminine instincts all interact with each other purely on a an instinctual basis, which means 
an unconscious, uh, wordless, behavioral, physicality interaction. And that's reptilian brained. But that's not the sum total of what a man or a woman is, or a male or a female is. There is also the emotions and the limbic system. And that in the evolutionary psychology model is the mammalian brain. But then above that is the higher brain that perhaps sets humans apart from other species. And it, that's the conscious mind. And in the conscious mind, there is character development. And that is indeed the part that needs instruction, that is learned. And when the yeah. sociologists talk about everything being learned, like we're a blank slate, we just learn everything from scratch. I understand why they would see that phenomenology and make that faulty assumption that everything is learned about behavior. It is not. But character is learned, but instincts are not. Instincts are inborn. They're automatic, and they're universal to each biologic mm -hmm. sex. But they're also universal to both males and females in the form of danger, the startle reflex, the patella reflex, all of these survival reflexes, those are universal to all humans, regardless of your immutable traits that you were born with and your background. But we can't conflate character growth and its, its need for learning and education and instruction from another high character, mature person, aka preferably a parent, a mother and a father. And a mother and a father are equally competent at growing their character maturity. It's, there's not a mm -hmm. male or female thing about character. It's just a universal goodness. The ancient philosophers talked about goodness and virtue. Right. So it's, it's virtue. And I don't mean virtue signaling. I mean actual Aristotelian virtues. Mm -hmm. Males and females are equally capable of, of course. But they will do so in a way influenced by the unconscious instinctual tendencies lying underneath their conscious mind that make a father do the fatherly things he does. Like my own son starts fights with me. He wants to get in a, in a fighting match, in a wrestling match, and he's laughing and it's hilarious for him and it's enjoyable and it makes him feel alive. It's not actual combat. It's play. Right. But his mother detests it, hates it. it. It's not her thing, instinctually. It's not her thing. But it still makes him grow. It teaches him limits and what is he capable of physically and what's going too far and what hurts, what's fun versus not fun. He's learning boundaries through the physicality in a way unique to me being male and a father and him being male. So. Anyway, I just wanted to say that that's our overarching model, the triune brain model. And within it, we view masculinity and femininity as, as residing in the reptilian brain, unconscious, same as Jungian psychology, which views there being an unconscious with a, a male and female side. I disagree with that, an animus and an anima. But he, Jung believed that there were masculine archetypes and feminine archetypes and that's kind of a weird wacky word to use i i would call them instincts mm -hmm. instead of archetypes biological instincts 
So there you go. Yeah. Now, where does where does EMDR fit in and trauma treatment fit in? Probably throughout that whole system of three parts. There's the emotions, the limbic system, the mammalian brain, but there are the masculine instincts in the unconscious, the reptilian brain. And then when you process trauma with people using EMDR, I think mm-hmm. that these these things you that you would call uh, self-cognitions, self-cognitions yep. are beliefs. I am bad. I am a loser. The negative mm-hmm. things. I am, I am a failure. And yes. through the process of EMDR, those self-cognitions transform into the natural and more accurate positives. I am a survivor. I am a winner. I am good. I am worthwhile. And those are now conscious. So you see right. how the the unconscious masculine instincts have an effect. They get shamed. That's that deep, wordless, unconscious shame that the traumatized feel. And then yep. you get the emotions bubble up. That's the mammalian brain. The emotions get expressed. And after they get expressed, now the higher brain, the conscious mind, can actually latch on to a phrase that's powerful and positive and optimistic and true and accurate in the form of positive self-cognitions that are conscious. I am a survivor. I am a winner. I am a good man. And now it's conscious. Yeah. um, EMDR is extremely robust. So one of my favorite things about it is that it incorporates much from other therapies. And so you nailed it. Um, we get a memory, often that what we call the touchstone memory or the worst traumatic event or the earliest that happened. So often like the touchstone memory is the oldest one, but uh, sometimes it's the worst. It's not the chronologically oldest memory. It's, it's what was most upsetting that happened. And then we ask someone, well, what is the negative thing, belief about yourself that you experienced from that? And there's typically three plateaus. Responsibility, okay, safety and power slash choice slash control and they're high they're hierarchical so responsibility is the youngest way of looking at a traumatic event because children are egocentric they view themselves as kind of the center of the universe they're not mature yet they don't know any better so um if mommy and daddy are fighting or divorcing or or if mommy and daddy hurt me it's my fault responsibility earliest plateau then we've got safety like i'm unsafe so it's pretty maladaptive if someone's trying to date or build friendships and they and anything that reminds them of a, a prior hurt makes them feel unsafe and retreat into their cave, haze instinct, whatever you want to say, um, and not be able to go after what they want and and um, actualize those, use those other instincts, right? We could put it in those terms as well. Um, and then at the top, power, choice, and control. That's the zenith, essentially, of normal human functioning is feeling that you have some power, choice, and control in your own life, that you have autonomy, okay? You can use different ego states or instincts or draw upon them like a Swiss army knife. You can actualize yourself, learn your your core reason for being here, and know when to behave in what manner, why, how, all of those things. And EMDR typically will treat a past, present, and future target. So a past trauma, a present 
trigger of it and then imagine how you'll respond in the future to something similar. So for a car accident, past accident, present triggers of it, and then the future, you know, imagining maybe you'll, that you'll swerve or that you respond differently to a problem driver, whatever. That's just an example. That's There's tons of possibilities for how that impacts interpersonal functioning. I mean, we get for the MDR protocol even involves the trigger memory or the target, the negative thought about self, the positive thought you wish you could believe, the emotions, the physical sensations, all related to an event, a negative event. And so we even have people look to the future and say, what would you rather believe about yourself rather than I'm powerless or it was my fault? And we have people. That's nice. That's a good approach. Yeah. I, so I, I yeah. think, you know, overall, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, the, the exact specific process that occurs. And, and I think kind of starting to wrap things up here, sure. an, overarching, an overarching way to see what does EMDR do and paired with inner, inner child work do, I almost see it as like spring cleaning or like cleaning out your garage or getting all the gunk out. Or in a computer yeah. analogy, it wouldn't apply to Apple because <laughs> Apple's perfect. But applying to PCs, the idea of a virus, having a computer virus, how is your computer going to run if it has this virus? And the virus is yeah. everywhere. It's all over the computer. It's not in one little part. So right. EMDR and trauma work and inner child work, clean out, wipe out the whole virus through your entire system. So that yes. everything functions smoothly again, and you can move on to pursuing those goals and dreams without having this computer virus always sabotaging things and getting in the way. And if you, if we were going to devise a training program for men, or a a teaching program, and or an actual bona fide ap- academic research supported new style of therapy. I think it would use some older models like positive psychology, behavioral mm-hmm. activation therapy, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic psychotherapy. These would self-psychology for sure. These would all be yeah. part of it. But what would be new, new elements that would be previously taboo to, be, to introduce would be skill building using these specific instincts in, I believe, two domains of life. And I'm going to explain why. The domains are career and romantic relationships. Career and romantic relationships. And I believe the reason why centers on the word passion. There are only two ways the word passion has ever been used. We all know it's used about referring to romance and sex, sexual passion, romantic passion. So being in love, but the other way it's used is more general, and it's about feeling alive, and it's about your life's mission or meaning, and it's what people say when they say, my life's passion or my mm-hmm. passion project. Therefore, the two ways that it ought to be applied, that skill building and training programs could teach each of these masculine instincts, would be to apply each instinct in the domain of romance and love, and in the domain of career development. That's what the training program would look like and be an effective, effective therapy for males. If, if synthesized with these other valid models that are higher brain, like of character, positive psychology, EMDR, 
would I would see EMDR as universally used to clean out the entire garage, you know, the to clean out the virus, to to defa- defrag the hard drive and remove the virus from the whole system. That's yes. how I would view it. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Great. We need limbic based therapy like EMDR that gets to the fight or flight response and the different self states that hold that or trigger it when we're in different. Okay. Maturity. So if EMDR were a quote limbic therapy, then it means uh-huh. it's, it, it, it use it capitalizes on emotions being expressed, which is mammalian. And so mm-hmm. EMDR then can look downward at the yeah. instincts and the unconscious and pull it conscious, which is then the higher brain only it's yes. fixing it in the process so that it's a more positive and accurate worldview and self view in the higher brain, yeah. in the conscious. That, that's neat. You know, I, so you would place EMDR maybe mammalian in its use. That's great. It, I think it, yeah, it moves about. That's what I enjoy. It takes elements from CBT, DBT and ACT. So for alphabet soup there. Ah, um, uh, yes. Yeah. My favorites because it's acceptance yes. and commitment there. It draws on value, uh, value development and maintenance. Yes, and yes, yes. Your values. values, as right. you said, virtues. What, what, what do you want to call it? values? Is kind of the sanitized. Well, your I would values say. would be like your your values would compose your your life's mission or life's yeah. purpose. Okay, bingo. And then and then that would help you establish what are your goals toward that life's mission right. that would be like ba bat meets act right and then the process of getting to those goals would employ the instincts as power sources and as methods right like apollo is the learned man it's using education to solve a problem zeus is hierarchical leadership power um, hades is going inside your own creativity going inside yourself and healing. Yeah. So, well, listen, Jeremy, it's been a pleasure. And, and thank you for all your insight on EMDR and tra- masculine trauma and male trauma. And, yes. uh, you know, any, any last thoughts, uh, summing things up? In your yeah, view? I definitely, I would say there's a therapist out there and a therapy style for anyone. If you, if you feel that therapy that's mostly based on validation and emoting isn't for you, but there's still changes that you want to make in your life and you feel that things just aren't working, please take heart and recognize there are so many different methodologies out there like ACT, like EMDR that help to develop your resilience while, while, while also validating your past. So I think it's important to do both those things. It's not just dwell on the past and it's not just forget the past, move on to the future. Sometimes you have to clear out the past first before you can move on. So I think a big key theme today has been the importance of breaking through isolation, developing communities for men, mentorship and avoiding pity and really leaning into developing mastery and skills and recognizing that men's mental health is complex and but we that's the bad news bad in quotes but the good news is we have the tools and insight from uh generations from mythology and the instincts and ideas presented therein to evidence-based approaches now that have 
taken from those ancient traditions and leveraged them like men's therapy groups, like you discussed. So I think that the, the key thing that should be taken from our podcast today is optimism, that there is a way forward that's pretty awesome for um, a therapy that develops a positive masculinity. Well, you, you, are, you are valuable, not because you're a victim, but you're highly, highly valuable to society in the way Philoctetes, in fact, you're indispensable. You're indispensable to society, not because of your wound, not because you're a victim of a wound, but because of what you uniquely learned from Mm. daring to be out in the arena fighting for your goals. You you happen to get wounded. You are highly valuable for that reason. Indispensable. So thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. And, um, We'll look forward to uh, continuing from here in our study of men's psychology. Thanks.